Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global Venture Stories. I'm here today with a very special guest, John Katzman. John is a multi-time entrepreneur and is currently the CEO of a company called Noodle. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Eric. So John, by way of introduction, why don't you discuss the thread that ties your various business endeavors uh, or the thread that tie your various business endeavors together? There are three things I, I look for and that I think a lot about. One is the measurement, how we measure kids, how we measure schools, all across education. The second, how do we just lower the cost of this thing? It's so expensive and getting more so. And the third is how we use technology, both to lower costs, but also just to do a better job. Because uh, yeah. I, I think technology has had much less impact than it might. And, and maybe let, let's start there. Why has technology had, had less of an impact than, than, than we hoped or than we expected? What have been the, the big bottlenecks there? Two reasons, I think. First, people have tried to graft it on. So there was a system that was formed over hundreds of years, thousands of years of more or less doing it a, a certain way. And you just plop technology onto it and, and it just doesn't add that much value. You have to rethink it as what does, what does education look like if technology is a starting point or is, is one of the givens, not a, uh, not a graft on. And the second is the way we approach data. And this started with Gates and with some of the other uh, ed reformers back 30 years ago, where they said, look, you know, we've got this data thing and we're going to use data to measure everything. We're going to, you know, we're going to measure everything and, uh, and we're going to use it to fire all the bad teachers and close all the bad schools. And then you'd kind of get somebody drunk and say, well, how many of the teachers are really bad? And they go all oh, like half. <laughs> and it's like, okay. So now they're out there saying that the point of technology and data is to fire you. <laughs> and surprisingly, like a whole, you know, kind of ecosystem grew up to uh, to fight it, to kill it in the crib. And you think of all the data privacy rules around uh, education, and who cares that you got a B minus in some course in fourth grade, right? Like, why are we so obsessed with personally identifi- uh, identifiable information in, in 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 education? And a lot of it is because we just don't like data because it it will be used wrong and it will be used against us. Yeah, that makes sense. I've I've heard it framed, you know, the first uh, couple decades of ed tech were about, you know, sort of taking education and putting it online. And so we got, you know, uh, MOOCs and, and, you know, online tutors and masterclass, but, but it's, it's the next decade or two decades. It'll be about the internet fundamentally changing what what we mean by, by, by education. And, and, and so I'm, I'm curious to hear what you think that might look like, or what are some examples directionally of things that are sort of, you know, reshaping it from the ground up as, as, as you put it. So imagine a spectrum, right? You know, when, when you, when you're in kindergarten, education is fundamentally a socialization experience. I don't think technology brings that much to the table. It might help you find a preschool near you. It might help, you know, the, there's a micro preschool market that's kind of popping up that I'm really interested in, but the education itself and the hanging out with other kids, I don't think is going to see dramatic changes. At the other extreme, life learning, you're out of college and almost anything you do, if you, if you think about 
you buy a house, you plunk down a bunch of money, but you know you're going to be spending X thousand dollars a year forever keeping the house in good repair, right? You got to keep it painted. You got to keep everything working. And almost everything works like that. You buy a car, there's a certain amount of maintenance. You buy software, there's a certain amount of, you know, any good software company is up, updating the software every day, right? So why would you think that education stops when you finish college? And that life learning thing has to integrate itself into your life. It's not about the socialization itself, although learning is fundamentally social, but it's where technology will have a greatest impact. And then there's sort of a slope in between the two where different kind of things come in. Yeah. Talk a little bit about, about just because you mentioned it, the, the micro preschool movement. What are you so excited about there? What's innovative and, and where do you think that's going? Well, what's innovative to me is 40% of preschool teachers are on public assistance, right? That's kind of crazy. And uh, it's, a, it's a tough industry. So the thing I like about it is it takes a couple of different threads. One, you're a developer building a building. And the least valuable apartments are the ones on the first floor, you know, kind of in the back Two, and, but, but at the same time, you're looking for amenities, right? You're putting pools up on top and you're doing all kinds of stuff. Two is I'm a preschool teacher. If I teach a small number of students, if it's a micro preschool, right? I don't need a tremendous amount of help. I'm subject to a lot fewer regs, right? It's a, it's a, it's a more manageable proposition. And you put those together and you say, okay. You get the apartment, you have a nice place to live in a nice building, in a nice part of town. And during the day, your living room, you know, uh, flips up through clever furniture. And now that's a preschool. It uses a space really efficiently. It's used at night. It's used at day. It gives the building an amenity, uh, a saleable amenity. And for someone in the building, it actually is a pretty good one that you can, you know, uh, uh, have your kid right nearby. Uh, if 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 need be, so I kind of like it on a lot of levels. I think it's an it's 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 a smart model. Yeah, and and there's a few startups that are tackling this now. T- Tiny Care is one, but there's, there's a few others uh, as well that, that are yep. exciting. So I want to go back to to measurement. Uh, we were talking about you know how to measure students, how to measure schools. You, you've you've worked in, in both of those spaces, and and now with with Noodle focusing on schools to help people pick the right school. What do you think we've gotten wrong about how to measure schools historically and and how can we do it better? We've gotten everything wrong. (laughs) So the starting point of measurement is what are you doing with the data? What do you want to encourage or discourage, right? These aren't science experiments. This is uh, a system where people might get fired or people get put back a grade or they get worse jobs or better jobs or, you know, like there are stakes to a lot of people here. So you have to evaluate it in terms of like, What are we encouraging people to do and what are we discouraging people from doing? So, for instance, we start, you know, well, I'll tell you, say one more thing. The things you can measure in the short term in education almost always don't matter. What your grades were, what your attendance was, right? The only reason we care at all are test scores is we think those things are predictive of things we do care about, which are long term, longitudinal real outcomes. People like you who do this will have better lives than people who do that. The problem is when you focus on the short-term measurements, they become less and less predictive of long-term outcomes. So 
we're not really measuring the correlation to begin with. And we assume that when we focus on the short term, that that correlation doesn't change. And I think both of those things are wrong. Yeah. So an approach that does two things is really important. One, we look at some short-term measures, but we really look at longer-term measures correlating constantly to figure out what's going well and poorly. And two, we look at students like you. The best way to look like a great college is to admit really great kids who are all going to graduate, who are all going to do great in life, and now you're a genius. Like That can't be right. So it has to be that the data set that a parent is looking at, the data set that a prospective college student is looking at is about students who are like them, who are like their kids. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. More broadly, particularly on, on K-12, what do you think the this, this state is of, of school choice and, um, and where is it going? The fundamentalist marketplace people, fund, fundamentalist capitalists, say like markets solve everything. And we don't need any regulation at all. We don't need any oversight. Just the invisible hand will solve everything. And that, that's been disproven over and over again, especially in education where it is hard to measure and we're not doing a very good job of it. And so bad things fester for an awfully long time, whether there are bad school districts or the for-profits in education. So, so I, think, I think just like, you know, let a million flowers bloom is, is not a compelling answer. But choice is an obviously good idea. Not every kid is alike. And any system that says you are the same as every other kid in your city, in your state, in the country, and this is our curriculum is moronic to anybody who has a sibling or a kid, like, or two kids. Like, it's just not how it works. So we need to really think about choice and we need to figure out how to regulate it properly so that so that people make good decisions, how to make sure people are armed with the right information and that the gaming that's going on as, as any choice system will uh, have uh, works to the benefit of, uh, of parents and, and kids. And, and uh, forgive, uh, forgive me if I'm being dense, but why is the, um, the million flowers bloom n- not a good strategy? Is it because some people just get left behind or the gap is too wide? No, no, no. Because the kids get left behind now, right? Like, so that's a silly yeah. argument. And, yeah. and the argument against innovation in general in education that, oh, the children, like, you know, an innovation might not work and, you know, you fail those kids. Well, standing still for several thousand years also doesn't work. And so you fail all the kids. Like, it's this dumbass uh, uh, yeah. kind of way of thinking. But the real problem is... I'll take an extreme, you know, I'm a school where if you come to my school, like uh, you get a free laptop and you get, uh, you know, the parents get steak or, you know, we are handing you a thousand bucks behind, you know, in your back pocket. It's like, that's a bad idea, right? So let's say that's an extreme bad idea, but reel it back from there. There's such asymmetry of information in education. And even look at the for-profit higher ed. You sucker people into your school because you have better advertising. The, the average community college spends a hundred bucks on cost of acquisition. The average for-profit university is spending like four or 5,000 wow. chasing that same student. It's not that they're great marketers, although they're very good. It's that they're overwhelming marketers, right? And with a 50 to one advantage, they're going to win. And so they took, you know, I, 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 hundreds of thousands of students, did a terrible job with them right? Just by every measure, terrible outcomes and, uh, and saddled us with a bunch of bad debt, uh, that will come due. And the people saying, Oh, you know, that's fine. Like that's just capitalism. 
You know, that's that's not capitalism the way I think that benefits anybody right. other than the investors in in some terrible for profits. Yeah. I, I heard somewhere that the uh the college rankings, I believe on World News Reports or whatever it is, the, the systems mm-hmm. actually rank them in order like how much money they spend, you know, on facilities or, or like th- those rankings have like weird incentives, misalignments. Because we don't measure outcomes in any kind of coherent way, we get all kinds of stupid answers. And uh, the U.S. News rankings are a combination of who you took in, right? So a bunch of smart kids go there. You're a great school. How selective you are. You managed to bring a whole bunch of applications. So therefore, you're a great school and your rankings go up. Yeah. We clearly can do better. But, this, but it's not easy. And the question is, well, who's focused on that? Who's focused on really thinking about how to measure education? Yeah. What would it look like to better measure outcomes? So uh, we want to talk uh, uh, K-12 first or higher ed? Uh, Let's do uh, higher ed first, then we'll go back to K-12. Well, the starting point is that not only is every university different, but every program at a university is different. What you need to be successful at a nursing program at a community college and what you need walking in to be successful as a philosophy major at Harvard are different. And what the goals of those two programs are, are different, right? So, so the starting point has to be, again, this is about this program telling us what it's trying to do in really measurable ways, not, you know, sort of, sort of philosophically, but for instance, somebody, somebody might say at, at, at a business program that's for adult learners coming out of, uh, of for profit, we're going to get you a better job. And specifically, we're going to get you a job that pays well and that or pays better than your current job and that you're happier in than your current job. Okay, that's a promise, utterly measurable. A philosophy program at Harvard might say, we're going to give you a better life over the next 40 years. You're going to feel good about the the education you got, and it's going to allow you to live a rich life that you are happy. And it could be things like you're going to be physically healthy or you're going to be mentally healthy, or it could be that you're going to uh, have a great career. But tell me what it is and tell me how you're going to measure it. A lot of it could be survey. So for this program, you've defined what it is you want to do and then measure it and survey your grads every year. Some of it you don't need to survey because if we, again, wanted to do this systemically, you could pull IRS data. You can almost pull LinkedIn data for a lot of people, right? Like just looking at your title, I can guess as to your salary because it doesn't have to be precise. It has to be accurate. So of the things you said you would do, how'd it go? And again, longitudinally, someone like you walking in this school, hey, you know, tell, tell us about you. We're going to find the X students who are most like you in our in our uh, uh, cohort of people who started the program, because you should include the people who don't finish and say, promise number one, you're going to have a good job. Well, the survey of students four years in or five years in or two years in, it depends how long the program is. Here's what percent said they got a good job. Here's what percent are happier with their job than before. Here's what they make now versus what they made then. And now there's not such an asymmetry of information. I'm looking at people like me Here's what this school says it's going to do for me, and here's how it's, it turns out it's doing. I think that's pretty compelling. And there might be things that we just want to know about every school, but not many. Mostly, yeah. tell me what you're trying to do and show me that you're doing it, 
for someone like me. And and were you implying earlier that there isn't really incentive for, for these institutions to do that? It's hard to do it solo. Like I might survey my grads, but if I'm getting naked and everybody else is clothed, you know, that can be embarrassing, right? So if we said as a country, this is, we're all going to look at this stuff. And the point is not firing anybody. The point is giving good information to somebody who's making a hard decision that really is life-changing. And so we're going to, and so we're going to do it. It's not very expensive to do, but it really is a lot easier, cheaper, and more useful if we do it in a consistent systemic way. And are you excited about uh, the potential for income share agreements? Because I've heard the argument where people say that if there were income share agreements and if they were, you know, sort of like if other people could buy into them, that would sort of create price transparency based on what people are willing to back versus not back. And and it would create some of these people do the research on outcomes in order to make better investments. I don't have a problem with ISAs and, you know, we, uh, uh, work with Stride in particular. We think they're really good folks, but I don't think it's a solution to this at all. For one thing, you're expecting that a lot of a lot of organizations, including, by the way, in the nonprofits, like some dean, some president who, you know, has a five-year term, is going to think, well, 20 years from now, the data is going to show that this really didn't work, and so I really should do something else. You're you're expecting people think a lot further down the road than, than they do. All the pressure is going to be fill your seats, get these kids through. And thinking about how history will judge you is something that is a luxury for a fair number of people. Number two, because we haven't regulated ISAs as debt instruments, which of course they are, there's a lot of crap out there and, and a lot of really, really shady practices. And, uh, I love the concept of ISAs. If you really are rigorous about making sure a student understands what he's getting into, making sure that the school understands what they're getting their students into, and just and just conforming with basic regulatory structures, I think they're great. Yeah. And then uh, how about K through twelve on on outcomes, better, better measuring outcomes? So think about this for a second. We are saying there's local control that a school determines what do where are its kids right now and where should it take them right that that's a local decision and we acknowledge that there are a lot of different approaches that are successful and then we say no we're going to have this common core and by the way common core is like the latest zit in you know a long standing bout of acne on this where we tell everybody this is exactly what a third grader should learn and a fourth grader and a fifth grader. And here's the instrument that we're going to measure it. So you teach whatever you want, but we're going to measure this. So good luck differentiating yourself. Like it's all bass backwards. And what happens when you have a system like that is the educators themselves hate it, but you can't really figure out since this was designed to fire them, you can't figure out, do you hate it because it's a gun aimed at you? Or do you hate it because it's nonsense education, right? It's it's not how people actually learn. Uh, not every kid needs to learn the same thing at the same time, and uh, and this approach isn't going to get you anywhere. But because you you think it might be the first, you just you just don't want to do this because you don't want to be measured. We dismiss the complaints of educators, and we ignore the kind of original sin 
of assessment in K-12, which is one size doesn't fit all. And you can pretend this isn't a curriculum. This is really just a framework. It's, it's, just, it's just bullshit. You look at all the curricula lined up against it. They're all the same. So imagine we said there are a bunch of good curricula. For instance, in high school, there's IB, there's AP, right? There's, there's any number of, of really interesting ways of teaching. If each one comes with its own assessment and we say, look, tell us what you're going to teach. This might sound familiar. Measure it. And then we'll take the numbers. And in this case, what we'll do, since, since we do have some really short-term longitudinal data, I can look at your middle schools and I can see how the kids do in high school and do they end up going to college, right? So it, I, don't wait, I don't wait 40 years to know if you're successful. There are a lot of interim steps where I start having a hunch, right? If, if you're the middle's KIPP, their test scores are a little bit better, significantly better than the district schools that are nearby. And you talk to educators about it. They're like, ah, you know, they spend more money. They're longer hours. Of course, they, you know, they're more focused on the test. Of course, they get somewhat better test scores. Then you look at what percent of the KIPP middle school kids end up graduating from college versus those schools. And it's like four times as many. And it's like, now tell me as a parent that you'd want to send your kid here versus here, right? Just, just the choice of what floor they are in the building is going to make a 4x difference in do they graduate college? and as we have more data over time, does that hold up in terms of what they actually make in income and how happy they are? Because there's plenty of data that says college grads make more and have better lives than non. Yeah. Right. But let's see if that if that if that pans out. So we use kind of equipercentile equating. If we say this network you belong to, this is the test they use. And they chose it with their curriculum. And they gave us in all the data and we crunched it and we said, look, you're a really easy tester. Everybody gets an A. So, you know, I'm curving it to this based on your long-term outcomes. This is actually, this student actually is, you know, like a B minus that students. I can compare schools. I can compare students without forcing them to a one size fits all test, which forces a one size fits all curriculum. Yeah. Long answers. I apologize for rambling. I don't know. But this, Stuff is complex. Yeah, no, no, it's instructive. And and going closing the loop on choice, how do you feel about vouchers? I feel about vouchers the way I feel about the death penalty. In concept, I'm totally there. Ted Bundy, somebody comes along, the world's better without him. Then you look at the real numbers at who gets the death penalty, and you say, This is really expensive. It's really flawed in a number of ways we don't have to talk about. Why don't we not do that? So yeah. If you put together a voucher system that is really, really thoughtful about how the money chases the student and what the incentives are for schools, how much money is, is on the back of which kids, you know, I could be for it, but I haven't seen a voucher system yet that really gets me where I want to get. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I want to go back to measurement of, of students where we began the conversation because there's been some concern recently among, you know, some people that you know, universities are sort of getting rid of some of the, you know, or some of the SAT requirements, some of the GRE requirements, some of these standardized tests across, across the board. And there's a sort of a question, one, people wonder if that's because of sort of political, um, you know, mo- motives, and, or if it's like punishing c- certain groups of people who are high performers, but then also, yeah, you know, just what sort of signal uh, does it mean to get into a certain u- university anymore? What is, um, 
Now, you, you obviously, the Princeton Review have thorough expertise and experience, uh, and you started the conversation by saying the SAT is 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 not a good test, and and it could be so much better. What, what are your views on uh, on on all this? Like, what what should what should happen? What should exist? You ask me these little tiny questions where I can answer in three words. <laughs> so I'll start with a metaphor. A college admissions officer is not St. Peter at the gate. You are worthy, and this guy is not. They're a casting coach, right? I'm looking for a tall guy with white hair to play Uncle Bob. I'm looking for a short, fat kid to play Billy. I'm looking for a dog to play the dog. I'm not looking for the five best actors in New York. I'm looking for the five best actors for those roles who get along and have some chemistry and make the whole thing sing, right? So that's what college admissions is about, right? I'm I'm crafting a class and it's complex stuff. One college president said to me, look, you know, you have 40, 50% of the kids who apply here, this highly selective college, are fully qualified to go as qualified as anybody else. Once I get that, it's not really about the kid anymore. It's about us. And I need geographic and gender diversity. And I need, I need engineers for my engineering school. And I need, you know, uh, football players for my football team. And they're like 150 buckets I have to fill. And and that's that's just how it is. And I have to have a certain amount of tuition because if I don't fill my tuition goals, then I go out of business, right? So I don't think people appreciate that the process is not random. It looks random because actually what's going on is much less about a ranking of students and you take the best ones, but but more about crafting a class. It's why, for instance, wealthy kids don't really compete with disadvantaged kids at all but Princeton, Harvard, and a couple other schools that can afford to give everybody a free ride. Um, I need so many of these to pay the bills. I need so many middle-class kids to cover the rest of, uh, of, of my goals. And then, I, I, and then that allows me to take so many disadvantaged kids. People don't realize the cost of higher ed has been roughly flat to inflation for 20 years. Every year they jack up the stated tuition. What they're doing is reaching harder into the pockets of upper middle-class people. And they use that money to 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 uh, to bring in more kids who are disadvantaged and give them uh, more financial aid. So against that background, think about all the different things that 30 years ago a college admissions officer used. She said, "Well, I've got the interview. Tells me who the kid is. Well, we don't do interviews anymore. We have too many apps for all kinds of reasons. We could spend the next hour on. I have the essay. Well, it turns out." that essays of wealthier kids, there's more coaching behind it. There are more eyes on the thing. Some kids are having somebody else write it all together. They turn out to be more biased than the SAT, right? In terms of who writes an essay that's highly scored. I have grades, except there's been massive grade inflation over the past 30 years. Everybody's got a 4.0 or better. So that's not that helpful. I've got the test scores. Enough said about the test scores. They're terrible tests for all the reasons we will discuss and have. But starting from the fact that, again, it's one size fits all. This, this is what everybody should learn and everything else is unimportant is a tough place to, to start you know, a good process. So what's left, right? You, you've just got you, each piece of the college admissions process has been taken apart. And then you get people saying, well, it's kind of a crapshoot now. Why not just make it a lottery? Except that I'm a casting coach. And I'm actually trying to put on a good play. And it is not random. I don't want five random actors to take these roles. I, I, I am building a cast that I'm proud of and that has worked for centuries 
uh, at a lot of these schools, and that and 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 my kids have had a good experience here. So you start a college and make it a lottery, but um, no, thank you. We need to start from scratch. I'm actually meeting tomorrow with a group of people that we're working on. I'm, I'm mentoring them on a startup to compete with College Board and ACT and say we could make this process so so much better and and less expensive and less stressful and more transparent, better for schools and better for students. And if you start with a clean sheet of paper and say, how would I do that? A whole bunch of answers will come to mind. And right now, no one's doing any of them. Without revealing you know, any uh, secrets, what, 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 what would come to mind in terms of what, what values might undergird the criteria of if, if we were starting from scratch? Like, how, how would we rethink it? Well, number one, the realization that every college is looking for something different that most of them are looking for diverse classes in one way or another, not just color or gender, but a whole bunch of things. And that just sort of an AI approach is, is not useful here, right? Like that's when we're looking for a diverse class is not when machine learning is going to be helpful. Oh, and, and finally, that, that security in the modern age, as you see from blockchain, is not to be had by keeping things confidential but by hiding in plain sight. So for instance, if I were going to write a test, right, which would be one part of the process, but by no means the whole part of the process. Uh, and, and, and again, not for everybody, but just a test for the people in my curriculum. I would just publish 10 or 20,000 items, right? They're all there. You practice as much as you want on those items. I'm constantly adding new ones, but there is, it's a big pool. And when you take the test, I'm going to deliver some number of items in some adaptive way. If you have memorized every single item in the pool, good luck with you. Like, that's great. You probably could have gotten a really good score just by learning the actual math. But I'm okay with somebody who really wants to learn it that way, too, because they probably picked up some math in the meantime. But meanwhile, I have perfect security. You take the test. An hour later, I take the test. It doesn't matter because I'm going to see different questions from you. And yet it's totally open. And part of the testing process is that people should prep, not by learning every question, but by being able to give themselves practice tests to see how they stand, where yeah. their weaknesses are that they can address. People talk about sort of credential inflation or sort of, the, I guess they brought a question of like, should we be subsidizing and incentivizing and encouraging everybody to go to college? Yeah, at the point that rich people go to college at the same rate as poor people, we should not encourage people to go to college. At the point that my kids will go, but I don't think your kids should go, fuck you. Right, right. And then what about sort of grad school and sort of PhD side of things? How, how do you think that should be reshaped if, if at all? Professional masters are kind of a different question than PhDs. and. Uh, and, and more broadly put, there's higher ed that really pertains to a job. And then there's higher ed that's really about uh, research and, and probably becoming a, a professor yourself. The second group, I don't really focus on because higher ed's got it down. And we can say, uh, are we overproducing faculty? And the answer is, if we are, then they'll produce less of them, right? Like it's that... That that kind of has been working for a while. I'm much more concerned about the first group. And again, the Silicon Valley narrative has been, we don't need full degrees. It's all about badges. 
the data has said something different, which is that the gap between grad school educated and college educated is widening, not shrinking, just as the gap between college and high school is widening, not shrinking. So somehow the data reads very different from what the data people say it should read. My feeling is every bit of education you get, again, just like you buy a house, you're going to need to put money into it all the time, you know, forever. And you build software and you're going to need to update it forever. Any degree you get should have a tale of some amount of learning you're going to do throughout your life. And certainly in a world that's being disrupted daily by one thing or another, when you switch careers, you're going to need some more learning. So I think that lifelong learning can coexist with graduate school in perfectly reasonable ways. I have a degree. It's sufficient at right now. And I'm going to take non-degree programs, certificate programs to keep myself current and to keep myself growing. But when I want to make a leap, graduate school is probably going to be continue to be a good idea. One thing that's changing is that graduate school is now pre-COVID was 35% online. Post-COVID, I'll bet you never goes under 50% again and will continue on its march towards 100%. Because doing graduate school online, if it's done well, and doing it part-time in combination with a full-time job is like a third the cost of doing it the old-fashioned way. Like if you, if you consider opportunity costs, the older you are and the average age of an adult learner taking one of these online programs is like 30. Well, you're making, if you're a college grad and you're 30 years old and you know, you're making, I don't know, 60, $100,000. So every year, your opportunity cost for stopping your career and doing a, a master's, even a one-year master's is way higher than your tuition. So thinking of it as uh, flanking your life versus your life goes on hold and this replaces it for a year or two, I think just makes sense. Yeah. So, so, so when you think about the future of credentials, you know, a decade from now, five years from now, do you think it's a combination of maybe one macro credential, i.e. a degree, and then continuous set of sort of micro credentials that you're updating or? Well, it could be a couple of degrees, right? It could be a BA and then a master's in something, right? You don't start your career as a rocket scientist, probably with a, with a BS. You probably have an MS if you're going to go work for SpaceX. But from there, you probably have to do something to stay current as technology changes. And that's okay. The certificate thing has another problem, by the way, which is an MBA means an MBA. Right now, look, an MBA from this school, they have probably a fairly consistent product. As an employer, you get to know, you know, I've, I've got good luck when I when I pull from there and less good luck when I pull from here. But they're all basically teaching something that is recognizable as a set of business skills. Every certificate program is completely different and they all have vaguely similar titles. And this one was a two-week seminar and this one is like 12 credits. It's entirely in Kuwait, and the idea that I'm going to put into my job description that you need this credential without some government kind of thing like they have for, you know, allied health is just fantasy. The idea that we're just going to sort of organically as a as a community. And again, this is where free market fundamentalists just just have it wrong, like that somehow out of that mess without any government involvement will arise something that's useful. I haven't seen it yet, and I don't expect to see it. So I would love to see 
a new degree, which is sort of the associates of a master's, Yeah. right? Stackable towards your master's, consistent from school to school, and something that you can sink your teeth into. This is a 12 credit thing. It's These are the competencies that people expect to walk out with. It's offered by these universities. I could imagine something like that, an employer saying, yeah, I can put that in. You should have a master's or at least a, a specialty yeah. in this. But as long as those are controlled by individual schools or by individual orgs like a, you know edX, they're just marketing titles and there's nothing an employer can do with them yeah. except just ignore them. Yeah, that makes sense. What, what do we do about the costs <laughs> or what do you think is the most effective you know, a lot of students in debt, obviously, um, at the higher ed level. Like, what do you, I read in Richard Vetter's book, he, he attributes a lot of the uh, costs to sort of misaligned incentives with uh, sort of government subsidies. You know, the more they get, the higher they, they charge because of the incentives. Is that a semi-accurate directional take? Um, and and what, what are your thoughts on? Every complex problem has a simple solution that's wrong. <laughs> yes. And I, I actually am a big fan of, of, of Richard, and I'm not saying he's way wrong, but teaching as a percentage of the overall spend at higher, in higher ed is about 20%, right? So anything focused on faculty and teaching, I think kind of misses the point, right? And so you look at, you know, Coursera kinds of solutions where ah, we don't need all these faculty. We, we just, you know, you just go learn it. It's like a correspondence uh, course on steroids. And it's like you could, and we all could have gone to college that way, but we had a great deal of fun and learned a lot because education is fundamentally social and that includes faculty, right? And, and Gallup and others, there's all sorts of research that the highest correlation of anything people do in college to life success, to being happy and being engaged with your job and so forth is relationship with faculty, wow. right? So again, you know, the data people have no data to suggest that any of this is uh, is actually true. And it's only 20%, right? So the administrators and facilities and... So facilities about 20%, right? And using technology, can we push that facility to double the population of a school without adding any buildings? Absolutely. Then you've got administration, senior administration from the provost on down. And that's like another 15 plus percent. And by the way, when I say physical plant, it's like the the amortization of the physical plant plus the operations. And then, you know, a good chunk of the rest. There, there's there's some other because there's noisy data, yeah. uh, especially among schools that are affiliated with hospitals and, and other things. And you try to you try to factor that out. But a good chunk of the rest is student services and academic support. And those numbers, the way I calculated, have like tripled in the past 20 years. That They used to be like a third of the cost of teaching, and now they're as high as the cost of teaching. Wow. And so if you really want, oh, and room and board is in there, and, and that's another 15% for students who are residential. If you really want to push on things, and the schools, by the way, that aren't residential don't have research, which is really what better is going after. If you want to solve the problem, I think, student services and academic support where not only are costs going through the roof, but administrators are working harder than you could possibly imagine. They are buried and they're getting less done in terms of students are walking in with all kinds of needs. There's all kinds of regulation now that gets added on. And that area 
it's not like we're spending that much more money, but now college is just awesome and everybody graduates and everybody's happy. It's like, it's really hard. And if there's any place where technology can have a huge impact, it is streamlining administration, specifically streamlining student services and academic support. Yeah. What's an example of that? Or what would, what would that look like? Like what, what's, what's going into that? Okay. I looked at some movable art schools and I'll, I'll call them out, Davidson. By my calculation, and it's imperfect, but I do it apples and apples. So I can see it over time and I can see it across schools. The cost of packaging financial aid for one student through her life at the school, right? Just packaging the aid. This isn't like the interest or anything. This is like the the cost of putting everything together is $5,000. Now, the average student who has debt, I'm talking per student who has financial need. The average student walking out of the school who needed financial aid walks out with like 25, 30,000 bucks of debt. 5,000 was just the cost of actually packaging the aid. That's crazy, right? So there are schools that do it for a couple hundred, but it's an example of they're trying very hard to do it perfectly. Who exactly gets run about and who's gaming what and how do we make sure that we're not being scammed? But in the end, is it is a cure better than the disease? Yeah. With the, the last five minutes or so, I, I want to ask a broad question. Not to say my questions today have been pretty broad too, but an even broader question, which is I'll ask two versions of the same question. One is if we're having this conversation a decade from now, and we're sort of, you know, catching up on the state of K through 12, the state of higher ed, I'm curious. What has changed? What significantly has changed? And I'm curious, by the way, if I wasn't following this in 2010 or 2011, but if we were having it then, is there a lot that would have changed You know, in that, in that conversation? That, that's one version of the question. The other version of the question is really just, you know, you, you've been in the space for, for many decades now. If you put your investor hat on, I'm curious what your sort of request for startups or request for innovation, things that you're, you're backing. You mentioned one example of things that you're looking to, looking to see, see happen. From an investor hat, in pre-K, I do like the micro preschools, and I do think that a rethinking of, like right now, how do we measure, again, who's actually having impact on kids? And so we should have a lot more data, for instance, on the New York City universal pre-K experiment over the past eight years, and we have nothing. Nothing's been published. Whenever nothing's been published, my spidey sense is no, they did the numbers and they sucked, and that's why we're not talking about it. So I'm I'm pretty curious about that. In K twelve, I think the major uh, opportunity is in supplemental education, and specifically, people think about supplemental education wrong. They think about it in kind of a 1960s 1970s way, which is here I've got my basal textbook, and then I've got my supplemental thing, and so I'm teaching this unit. And then the supplemental is, has worksheets and all sorts of stuff to reinforce the learning that we're doing right now. The right answer is, you know, especially I'm talking about less advantaged kids. There are a lot of kids in there who are one year behind grade level, two years behind grade level, who have all sorts of, of, of holes in their game. Teaching them more of this stuff is not actually useful. So if you said, we're going to have a 12-month-a-year seven day a week, 24 hour a day, set of resources for students that take them where they are right now and just continue to teach them. So you're in seventh grade and you're doing seventh grade stuff. But when you go home and when you're home for the summer and when you're home, you know, there are a set of resources, people and tech to say, actually, you're at a fifth grade level. 
in this, but it doesn't, you don't even have to use the word fifth grade. This is the stuff. It's not exactly what you're learning in school right now, but you know what? If you learn it, uh, school's going to be a lot easier. And just steadily taking you through in a patient way until you're caught up. And if you think about supplemental education as detached from the basal, detached from the standards, detached from the goals of this year, and just meeting the kid where he is, I think there's an opportunity there. I also think there's an opportunity between high school and college that the same kind of people who gave you Common Core believe that that high school and college should fit together like, like stones in a pyramid, right? Like the, you can't put a piece of paper between them. If you're graduated high school, you're ready for college. And again, as I said before, are you ready for a philosophy major at Harvard? Are you ready for a nursing program at a community college? Like, what are you ready for? Every school is different and every school is teaching some overlapping set with whatever the standards are. Every teacher is teaching an overlapping set with that. Every student's learning some part of that. You didn't get a perfect score coming out of high school. You, you know, you had to be average, which you learned 80% of the stuff, but which is the 20% you didn't learn. And then on top of that, you forgot stuff, especially as an adult learner. So there's a gap between the two, between the skills necessary to succeed in the thing you want to do and the skills you actually have right now. And that gap isn't going away. And my guess is all of the forces, all the tectonic forces drive them apart, not together. So if you think about that as a market and say, what are the businesses that are going to be built to serve that market, the on-ramp to college, that allow colleges to have high standards? We work with kids who know these things. If you don't, you're not ready to come here. But make college accessible to everybody and say, look, if here's where you are, here's what you need to have in order to succeed there. Why don't we save you some money so you're not spending college tuition and then bonking out? It might take a week, it might take three years, but we'll get you there. And actually, we as a country owe it to you because it, you probably didn't learn it because we probably sent you to a crappy school. And so this isn't out of Title IV, this is more out of Title I. This is, this is something that if we're successful at it, could be inexpensive and could actually be pretty well subsidized, not a, not a debt instrument. When I look at higher ed, I think in terms of um, the move online is going to force a consolidation of the space. Everybody's been talking about it for a while in a fairly unsophisticated way. I think most of that consolidation is going to be schools pulling in their horns and doing less. Which are the majors that are really core and that we have a reputation for and that we can deliver at a cost structure that is better than other people with a quality that's better than other people? And the schools that focus themselves, I think, are going to be long-term successful. I think there's going to be tremendous headwind for tiny little schools without a brand and for national schools that are fighting, especially online, a rear guard action as really good online efforts pop up locally that offer better economics and a better job community than the national players do. So who's servicing those schools? How do the schools collaborate at scale? Um, is where I think uh, interesting things are going to happen. And finally, like learning, Coursera takes between 50 and 65% of tuition, basically for providing some marketing. Once again, we have Silicon Valley stepping in and saying all of the benefits of tech should accrue to Silicon Valley, right? We're going to save some money and then we're going to spend all of it on marketing. So I think the opportunity is going to be people who actually can drive down the cost of higher ed and make sure that money ends up in kids' hands, students' hands, 
are going to win in the continuing ed space, in the in the ongoing education space. Not said about that. And yeah. again, the testing companies are vulnerable. They're not very good. Their feet are set in concrete. They have a one size fits all mentality that has been proven to be ineffective. And people who come up against them with a more compelling solution are going to find a good audience. Yeah. I've heard the argument that SATs were basically substitutes for, or these standardized tests were substitutes for IQ tests that were basically mm-hmm. like politically incorrect for employers. They weren't to- substitutes. They were derived from IQ yeah. tests. And some people think that IQ is actually, you know, more correlative than, than people give credit. You think IQ is probably a bad predictor or bad sort of like success in a company or something, or, you know, I know people who are super smart, like a handful of them. They are clearly smarter than you and I, or than you and me. Like they're, let's put those over there. And I know people who are mentally disabled in between those two, the 98% of us, I just don't think hardware matters. I think it turns out that software is dispositive. And some of that happens very early in your life. Some of it happens later. But the fact is, I, I actually was sitting down with uh, the guy who wrote the bell curve, uh, Charles Murray. And we had lunch and we were just talking about this because I'm more a nurture guy and he's more a nature guy. And everybody agrees it's some combination, but I'm way on this side and he's way on that side. And we came up with the G prize. And the idea would be this. You fund groups to come up with teams of, you give them 200 students. They are uh, six years old, and they're testing at a 90 IQ, you know, by reliable measures, by reliable measures. Their parents have signed off that you can do just about anything. So you can pull them out of their neighborhood, you can put them in, you know, an academy, you can use uh, approved uh, drugs, you can do whatever. Six years later, they are now, you know, 12, 13 years old, they're in middle school. And can you get 80% of them to test at the 75th percentile Again, on reliable measures of academic achievement, right? That NAEP kind of kind of batteries. And I said, if you could do that, if somebody won that prize, are you wrong? And he said, I'm dead wrong. If somebody could do that, and I would bet anything that they cannot do that. And when I talk to a whole bunch of other educators, their answer is definitely someone could win that prize. And so if we ever want to settle this question, I think we just need to do the G prize because I know an awful lot of people who would compete. And it would be fascinating. And if it turned out that the intervention cost a million dollars, you could take someone who is going to be a cost to society their whole life, right? The prisons are full of them. I mean, like all down the road and turn them into somebody who is going to be a serious producer, but it costs a million bucks. Still got a great ROI. And if you can do it for a million bucks, you know, over time, we can probably do it for half a million bucks, right? We can do it for less. So we can, we can figure out what's important and not, but but the first question is just at any price, can you do it? Yeah. That's so a, which way would you bet? <laughs> it's a good question. I, I, I'm not deep enough on the, on, on the science of it, but I'd love an inspired person to, uh, to, to hear about it and, and maybe support it or, or help bring it to, bring it to life. Cause I, I think it's a, it's a really great idea. Awesome. That's a perfect flip, flip, note to, to end on. My guest today has been uh, John Katzman. John, this has been a fantastic episode. Thanks for, thanks for coming on. Totally fine. Thanks for having me, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.